welcome to Aviation United by Aviation Zorro. I'm delighted to be chatting with uh, lawyer Claudia Gill from uh, Sherwin O'Riordan Law Firm in Dublin. A uh, very good afternoon, Claudia. How are you doing today? Hi there, I'm good. How are you? Wonderful. So let's crack on. We have a lot of uh, questions being sent in to us uh, at Aviation Zorro, so we try to get through as many as we can as uh, possible. So just a little bit of background about yourself. Tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do. Okay, so I am a solicitor. I'm working in the employment law department of Sherwin O'Riordan. We act for both employees and employers, um, which, you know, gives an interesting perspective to things and it tends to give a good insight as to what both parties to contract employments might be hoping to get out of a dispute or, um, you know, I suppose if issues arrive in the, arise in the workplace, the different approaches that either party can take to try and resolve them. Right. So generally, um, so how would you start off? So obviously with all with, with employment law and contracts. So what would you advise or suggest to somebody? So when they receive a contract from their, from their employer, what, what, what are they looking for? What, what should they okay. do? So I suppose two things can kind of arise when it comes to contracts of employment that can create obstacles from employees for employees from the get go. Um, and those are number one, a situation where an employee has, been working with a company for an extended period of time and was perhaps provided within a contract when they initially started, but they've subsequently lost it and you know the employer hasn't retained a copy. So they don't actually have access to their contract of employment. That's something that we can see quite often. Okay. And I suppose the second initial obstacle um, for employees can be in circumstances where they weren't provided with the contract. And that can create a lot of confusion and a lot of difficulties if they do find themselves in a situation where they want to be able to rely on their rights. So there's a couple of things um, that you can do to tackle that. And I suppose if you look at the first situation, if an employee doesn't have a copy of their contract and they're not able to get a copy um, readily from their employer, then what they need to do is ascertain what exactly the terms of their contract of employment are right and so even if you don't have a written contract you still have a contract nonetheless and the term the terms of that contract rather than being in black and white um they'll be you know dictated by a few different things so you'll have certain terms um that will be expressly agreed between the employee and the employer and what you know what you might expect there is a start date or a salary or different things that might be um, agreed I suppose as part of the recruitment process so that's one thing that you can look at the next um, and I suppose it's it's important to also note that those are things um, that you should really be watching out for regardless of what's in your written contract sometimes people will say I have a contract it says x but the reality is y um, so it's also important to make sure, I suppose, that if you do have a contract, it accurately reflects, you know, the terms under which you carry out your role. Right. So, so, the you, next... so should you have, I mean, is when you sign a contract, I mean, should the employer um, kind of talk you through it step by step? Or is it a case of, you know, here's your contract, read it and on you go? Yeah, so it can be either. And it sometimes can put employees in a little bit of a difficult position because, or I suppose, less difficult, more uncomfortable. Um, because generally when you've been offered a job the last thing you want to do is kind of come across as a troublemaker by asking a whole load of questions or you know appearing difficult rather than just signing the contract and giving it back sure. um, but everybody's entitled to ask questions and 
realistically, you know, employers that are drafting contracts, they should make sure that they draft them in a way that's clear and understandable um, to employees. And that's that's a really important point. Um, it actually comes back to contract law. And there's a rule that says if there is an ambiguity on the face of a contract, it should be interpreted as against the party that's drafted it. Um, so I suppose in English, what that means is the more complicated and I suppose, um, like the more, sorry, the less clear a way, I suppose, that you sure. draft the provisions of the agreement, leave it more open to different forms of interpretation. And so it's always best to make sure that, you know, things have been drafted in a way that's clear for an employee so that an employee knows what they're bound by and what they're signing up for. And that's in the interest of both parties. Because if an employer is looking to enforce a certain position or a certain provision, the last thing that they want is an employee saying, well, that's not part of my contract or I didn't realize that that's what, you know, that's what that meant. So it's, you know, it's always beneficial for both sides to know exactly what they're agreeing to at the time that they enter into the contract um, so that they know what's expected from them and so that they know what they can expect from the other party. Right. So, so generally, let, let's move on then to one of the favourite questions, especially in the aviation industry in particular. And we're asked this quite a lot is the legality of training bonds. Uh, are they legal? Are they enforceable? Or is it just something between the employee and the employer? OK, so I suppose theoretically they're legal, but it very much depends on so the enforceability of them very much depends on the terms, the conditions of each particular bond. So it's something that type of arrangement is actually something that comes up quite regularly in employment. And there's a variety of different ways that employers will try and give themselves a form of clawback. So sometimes, you know, if they're providing funding for a course for an employee to complete, you know, what they can say is that the cost of the course might be deducted from wages over you know, a certain period of time, which will facilitate the employee to undertake the course straight away. And it allows both parties to benefit from it. So my understanding of how bonds work in aviation and the purpose of them is to, you know, give pilots the opportunity to undertake their training and allow them to work so that they don't have the same financial barrier as they might otherwise have. Um, but in terms of, you know, I suppose the enforceability of that provision and the fairness of it, it will come down to the manner in which it's drafted. And I suppose whatever action or inaction either party are trying to take on foot of that provision. Right. So say, for example, then we'll take a little step further. So you've signed a bond or you signed a contract and you understand the full terms and conditions, but say six months into your contract due to personal reasons, something has happened. Um, pretty much it still makes no difference. You're, you're obliged to follow the terms and conditions of the bond and a contract. Would that be the best way of saying it? Yeah, I suppose based on the assumption that, you know, there are no other technicalities or reasons that um you know that provision might be rendered unenforceable but i would always advise that if you are signing up to something as part of a contract take it that you're going to be bound by that um and take it that the the other party is going to try and enforce it right. so you know if there's anything if there's any provision or if there's any part of it um that perhaps an employee is uncomfortable with or unsure about um, or if they do want maybe, you know, to get an, an employer to elaborate on maybe how there might be um, a means of getting out of that if something, you know, unforeseeable did arise. Um, then I would say try and negotiate it as part of, you know, the initial exchange around the contract. 
it's always easier to kind of deal with things up front than to try and reverse them down the line. Right. Okay, great. Okay, on to the next one. Um, so an employer, can, how is it an employer can terminate your contract with minimum notice, but as an employee, you must give the required notice? Is there one rule for one and another rule for another, or is it a case of the terms and conditions of the contract must be uh, followed through? Okay, so effectively, there isn't any specific rule that would allow an employer to terminate with minimum notice, um, but would require an employee to give you know, a greater period of notice. The reason that it can sometimes look that way, or that's what can happen, is the manner in which the contract has been drafted, which puts a heavier burden on an employee in terms of the notice that they have to provide. So generally speaking, the amount of notice that you can expect to give should be in a sense dictated by the length of service you have and also your position within the company. And so if you have somebody in a more senior position, there'll be an expectation from them that they provide a longer notice period, which you know gives the company or the, the employer an opportunity to make whatever arrangements need to be made in order to fill that void. Um, there's also, I suppose, a provision for payment in lieu of notice, which effectively means that if an employer wants to end a contract of employment and provided the contract is drafted in a way that allows for it, instead of saying your employment is going to be terminated in one month's time, it allows them to say your employment is terminated today, but we're going to give you payment of a month's salary instead right. of giving you that required notice period. Um, and I suppose all notice really means in terms of the contract is time. It's giving time to somebody, it's giving time to the other party to allow them to make arrangements. Um, and, you know, it's necessary. Sorry, One, Paolo, is that going to continue? No, it will. It can be helpful and unhelpful. Um, in a sense, you know, if you're an employee and you're being terminated, then the greater the notice period you have, the more time you have to make whatever arrangements you need to um, in terms of, you know, other opportunities that might be out there. And I suppose on the other side of it, it can sometimes be unhelpful to have a longer notice period. Um, if it means that when other opportunities arise, you might be in a position where you have to provide three months notice to your employer instead of being in a position to just take up another, um, another opportunity as it arises. So right. what I would say on that, um, again, and this might sound repetitive, but it's something that you should perhaps look at tackling at the time that you sign up to the contract. And, you know, if you are going in at a level that's, um, well, I suppose if, if you're at the early stages of your career, you know, you shouldn't be expected to sign up to a contract that has a notice period of any more than maybe one or two months for the first couple of years anyway. Um, you know, sometimes it can happen that people will go in and they'll have a six, they'll agree to a six month notice period, which is just, it's too burdensome on an employee because, you know, it's generally speaking, people at that level won't be in a position to have another company wait six months for them um, if they've accepted an offer and before they're in a position to start. Yes. So you can sometimes see um, maybe notice periods like that that will just filter through because they've been used in a contract for somebody else and then they've just been moved across rather than being I suppose bespoke um, so there I think there is always I, some degree um, flexibility for kind of negotiations around that and a lot of the time employers will be quite reasonable with things they'll say oh yeah do you know that's right um, you know six months is a bit much let's bring it down to two or let's bring it down to three so you know I suppose there are things that you should expect to see in the contract um, 
And it's important that if there is something like that that maybe raises any flags for you to try and tackle it early on um, so that you're in a better position sure. to make whatever decisions that you need to down the line. So as you said, you said, just plan, you know, don't expect anything, so to speak, um, any, anything other than what's in the contract. So it's, it's always best to yeah. plan ahead. So generally, what about then, um, this, this one seems to be a little bit com- confusing for, for certain people that, okay, you have, you're working for an agency, so let's talk about agency work. And the agency in particular is, say, based in, say, Malta, Isle of Man, Middle East. But you're not working in any of those countries. You're working in some other country. So are you actually, do you have any employment rights whatsoever? Okay. So again, it will come back to your contract and what it says. Most contracts will have a jurisdiction clause that will say in them, um, you know, any disputes arising under this contract will be governed by, you know, the laws of Ireland. Um, and the Irish court. So it's important to be mindful of um, what the contract says and if there's a jurisdiction clause in that. In circumstances where you might not have a jurisdiction clause, there's a few different things that you can look at. So number one is where the company is based. And if you have a company that's based out of the same country that you're living, well, then that's helpful. And, you know, the likelihood is that that's, you know, that's the country that, um, you know, that you can, um, rely on the employment rights within that country but then there's also a situation I suppose it's probably more prevalent with the aviation industry whereby you work for a company that's based in one jurisdiction and you might be living elsewhere and obviously you're traveling an awful lot Um, so what I would suggest people do you know if they're not in a position to identify from their contract what the jurisdiction clause is and if they're not sure you know they might not even be sure I suppose where the company is actually based or you know where and um, what country's laws would govern that contract then i would say to reach out to somebody locally yes. so look at where you're based where you spend the most of your time for work and you know you should be able to get some direction um from somebody locally that either works in law or you know maybe in there there's a variety of different facilities available in ireland i know that can offer legal advice to an extent to individuals so reach out and try and get a sense of things um, as to what might apply and just build on it from there. Right. Um, it's and just, educate I yourself. Think, so pretty much before you sign anything, kind of get, get the background, educate yourself. And uh, so you have no surprises later on. Yeah. And what I would always say as well is, you know, don't be afraid to ask questions. So, you know, something that can regularly come up for employees is what, what can I expect to see in my contract of employment? And, you know, you always need to have the fundamental information. So, you know, who is the employer? And often the case employees actually don't know who employs them. So they might know the trading name of a company. Um, So I don't want to name any here, but, you know, they they might just know the trading name, but they don't actually know the entity that employs them. And that's really important because if a dispute arises, you need to be able to pinpoint who is it that is accountable and who is it that you have actually entered into this contract with. So it's always important to make sure you can establish what entity that is. And I suppose the the corporate structure of companies can be very, very complex. It's not, you know, it's not as straightforward as it used to be. And there's, you know, there's a variety of different ways that companies will employ people. So it's really important that in your contract, you're able to pinpoint, well, who is my employer? And it's, it's a requirement in Ireland by law that that is forms part of the written contract the name and the address of the employer 
because you know it's it's you're entitled to know it as an employee and it's you know it's really important to be able to establish it but you should also expect to see everything you need to know to carry out your job so you should expect to see where you're based um, and again it's a requirement that it goes into the contract under Irish law but everybody should ensure that they're in a position to establish well where am I actually based and I mean there's the legal side of it and why you know you might need it um, in terms of your rights but then there's also the practical side of it and if you're entering into a new job there's so many things that can go with that and there's so much uncertainty you know as that I suppose how you're going to get on with the job and if you're going to like it and if you're going to be happy um, but as well it gives you a little bit of security so that you know if for example um, you know you're involved in flights and week one you're flying in and out of Dublin and that's where you're based you know you should have um, that security that you know that in a month's time you're not going to be flying in and out of an airport somewhere in France sure you know without having proper notice so I would always say like make sure you can answer all of the simple questions you might have from your contract um, so the type of work you're going to be doing where you're going to be based you know when you're going to be starting um, how long the employment is going to last so that's that's really important as well is it a permanent contract or is it for a fixed term um, and it's really important to know the difference just so that you know what to expect um, and you know exactly what you're getting yourself into into um, and then there's you know there's other things that you should always look out for in terms of um, I suppose benefits that might be offered so you know what's what are your annual leave entitlements is there anything enhanced there what's you know the is there any entitlements to sick pay or what are your obligations if you do have to phone in sick so these right. are all things that should be dictated by your contract of employment and if those kind of obvious things are missing um, or if there's anything you know that you might be uncomfortable with as an employee then it's something you should raise and you're entitled to raise um, and again sometimes you know it can be an uncomfortable conversation maybe to have with your manager or to have with somebody in HR but it's always worth doing um, because again <clears throat> you know in employment it's your day-to-day -day, it's your it's your life um, so you know it's important to make sure that you take responsibility for it and that you know, you make sure that you do what you can to give yourself the best protection should you need it. So what about then, you mentioned there previously with regards to, um, you know, your entitlements and uh, your benefits. So say, for example, you're, you're working for a company, you say more than 12 months or even 10 to 15 years or more. And then you decide then to, uh, for some unknown reason or circumstances that they terminate your contract. Can they offer you a new contract with lower terms the following day or by law, is that not possible? Okay, so you need to look firstly at the first contract and whether or not they've breached that. Because really, you know, that's where your rights are coming from. So why have they terminated? Um, is that something that would constitute a wrongful dismissal or an unfair dismissal? What's the reason behind it? And, you know, generally speaking, when you're working under a contract, there might, there might be an expectation to some degree of flexibility on behalf of um, an employee. But there shouldn't be any drastic changes to your terms and conditions of employment. You shouldn't expect to see, you know, overnight, um, you know, that you're expected to work twice the hours for half the pay. And so, you know, employers, if they, if that is something that is coming into the equation that they're no longer happy with the terms of the contract of employment that they have, then that sometimes is what can motivate um, a termination of a certain contract and then an offer of employment under you know varied terms immediately after so an employee in that situation has a couple of options so the first thing you can do is think you know why have they terminated 
how you feel about that and whether it's something that you want to challenge. Now, obviously, if you're going to challenge a decision that has been made by your employer, um, you probably need to look at what your, you know, what your plan is and, you know, whether you want to continue in employment. Um, because generally speaking, if you're going to take action to challenge a decision made by an employer, you're going to cause um, some erosion to the relationship that you have with them. Right. So it's important to kind of think, well, what's, what's my plans here and what are my goals from this? Um, and then I suppose you also need to look at, well, is there anything being offered to you in terms of, you know, a severance? Is there an acknowledgement by the employer that for whatever reason, things are changing here, we need to terminate your employment, but we're going to offer you a different position um, and, you know, and see how reasonable they are about it. And also consider, you know, are you happy to accept these new terms? You know, is, is this actually something that would be beneficial for both sides? Um, you know, and kind of consider what it means to you and what is being offered. But generally speaking, I suppose, or to give as simple an answer as I can, an employer yeah. isn't entitled to just terminate your contract one day and then offer you a new one on very terms the next day. It would create a number of different um, options for an employee to take in terms of legal proceedings. Right. Great. Okay, so then what about, um, okay, you've applied for a new job and your either the agency or your uh, future employer has asked why you've left your previous company. Can they do that by law or is that just an internal thing that they, they choose to go through? Okay, so I suppose it's something that you see coming up quite often. Um, you know, it's something that employers will just naturally want to know and they'll be curious because it can give them a little bit of insight as to how things might play out um, if, you know, if they do offer the, the candidate in question on, um, a job. So what I would always say is that, you know, employers should respect people's entitlement to privacy. Um, you know, every individual, you know, is entitled to professional courtesy as part of a recruitment process. And so they shouldn't feel obliged to answer questions that, you know, don't relate to the job or they feel are personal. Um, and, you know, you can often see um, there's just, I suppose, a huge reluctance on or I suppose a caution um, by some companies to ask certain questions and that can relate to kind of people's personal lives and um, they can you know I suppose there is an understanding that when you go into an interview you're not going to be asked questions about your age <clears throat> your background your family status and um, you know whether you have kids and the reason for that is it can give rise to an inference of discrimination if you're actually unsuccessful and a candidate who has been asked the same questions and perhaps has given different answers has gotten the position instead of you. And so discrimination is a really important thing to bear in mind when you're going into any interview process. <clears throat> and excuse me, and I know in Ireland, you know, you're entitled to the same rights under employment quality legislation in terms of access to employment as you might be, you know, in the course of your employment. But that aside, I would say there's nothing really off the table in terms of the questions that prospective employers can ask from candidates. So, you know, if if that's something that you feel you might be uncomfortable with, um, you know, prepare an answer and maybe get in touch with, you know, your most recent employer um, to get a sense of whether they're willing to provide a reference and, you know, what your position might be there. It might it might give some degree of comfort to people. Um, and it also might give you a sense of what they're going to say. So you're not obliged to divulge that information, but 
you know, it might not be in your best interest to just refuse to answer it. Um, right. You know, it mightn't be looked on too favorably from, from a, a prospective employer. Right. Okay. So then, um, so, okay, you've, you've, you've lost your job for any known reason. Uh, what do you recommend uh, is a first step with regards to workplace grievances? So rather than going in all emotional and telling the boss where to go, what would you, uh, what would you recommend? Yeah, so I think um, the first thing everybody should be aware of in terms of their employment is what they can do to deal with any issues that might arise. And issues in the workplace, you know, they happen all of the time. And, you know, in terms of the severity of them, um, there's just there's such a vast range. So there's things that are obviously can be dealt with very informally. And then there's certain things that need to be escalated and you know, dealt with in a much more formal manner and would warrant, you know, an investigation to be carried out into whatever the particular issues are. So what I would always suggest is know what sort of avenues you have internally to deal with issues. Um, it's very important to try and be proactive in dealing with things when you're, you know, when you have to face into them on a day-to-day -day basis. And so again, you the contract of employment or any handbook and supplemental policies that have been provided should set out clearly a grievance process uh, under which employees can go and you know raise grievances based on any difficulties that they might be facing and that generally you know a good um, and appropriate grievance policy will allow employees to raise a grievance for any reason you know you don't you shouldn't have to prove and provide evidence of x y and z if there's anything that causes you discomfort or upset in the workplace, then you should be entitled to raise a grievance over it and it should be dealt with by the appropriate individual. So, you know, you should expect that if your issues are with your line manager, you should expect that there is a way by which you can escalate a grievance to somebody that is, you know, that is over them rather than having to go and face to the person that might be causing you a lot of distress in the workplace. Um, so I would always say, you know, before taking any action, see if you can be proactive about things and deal with it internally. And sometimes it can be very, very effective. Um, but I would always say, you know, a resignation by an employee should very, very, very much be a last resort um, because there are certain rights and there are things that you can do to deal with um, any issues that you have before sure. you should be expected to go and, you know, terminate your contract and walk away from your job. Right. So where can our listeners, if they need to get further information from yourself um, or your, your, your company, uh, Sherwin O'Reardon, uh, where can they contact you? Is there a website or they can contact you directly? There is. So there, our website is, if you just put into Google Sherwin O'Reardon, um, but it's www.sor-solicitors.ie. And... Um, we actually there's a lot of um, articles that have been published on the website that might be of use to people to kind of get a under, better understanding of what their rights might be and where they might be able to go with things. Um, but all of the contact details are there. So if anybody wants to get in touch, they're free to do so. Excellent. So if any of our listeners have any more questions, uh, employment law or uh, anything else of uh, more in depth that are wanting to uh, discuss, they can either contact us at aviationzero.com or as uh, lawyer Claudia Gill mentioned, uh, they can contact Sherwin or Reardon direct. So uh, thank you very much for joining us today, uh, lawyer Claudia. Uh, appreciate your time. And uh, I'm sure we'll hear you again in the near future on Aviation United by aviationzero.com. Thank you. Thank you.